Hello, and welcome back to The Answer is No. I'm your host, Alexis Clements, and this week I'll be talking with photographer, educator, and organizer, Josue Rivas. The answer is no. If you were following the Standing Rock protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline, particularly in 2016, when the government and privately funded mercenaries violently confronted the protesters, you likely saw at least some of Josue's moving and intimate images. Of Mexica and a Tomi heritage, Josue spent months building relationships across the many indigenous groups who gathered at the protest camps, ultimately collaborating with a number of them to create his award-winning images. Josue's experience at Standing Rock proved to be an important moment of expansion and deepening for his practice. In the years since, he was named a Magnum Foundation Photography and Social Justice Fellow. He co-founded Indigenous Photograph, co-authored the Photo Bill of Rights, and became the curator of Indigenous TikTok, among many other accomplishments. Statistically speaking, as has been the case in so many other areas of the arts, the pandemic highlighted pre existing inequities in the field of photography, particularly around who was getting offered jobs, whose work was being shown in cultural institutions, and how people were being paid. As part of an effort to quantify and call attention to these inequities, some of those who went on to author the Photo Bill of Rights put out a visual storyteller's survey. Among the many stark results revealed by the survey was the fact that the average salary among over 700 respondents was $25,000 per year, and Indigenous and POC photographers were far more likely than others to make less than that. Other concerns highlighted by the survey were things like access to health insurance, whether or not photographers feel safe while on assignment, overall financial insecurity, and the fact that these uncertainties, among others, were contributing to high rates of people considering leaving the profession altogether. Let's start the show. So the thing I always like to ask people right at the top is just to get a sense when you were a little kid, what you imagined your adult life would actually look like. I actually did not see myself living to, to have an adult life, to be honest, when I was a little kid. I think the having a sense of, you know, survival that, that was, you know, turned on very quickly at age seven. I live more for the present than to really imagine myself as a as an adult. And I think that that also came from me understanding, you know, the value of making it another day. Um, I, you know, fortunately had to live on the streets in, when I was really young. It was being helpful in the way that I see my work and, and what I'm doing here on earth is to just remember that, you know, tomorrow is not really promised. And, and, and now I have a little bit more of a sense of ambition in myself. But back then, I definitely did not think I was going to make it. At what point were you making the shift to think about photography or think about the arts as something important to your life? Um, so I grew up in a household that my parents were, they would photograph like, uh, like you know, events in, in our city back in Mexico, um, in Guanajuato. And they would do like quinceañeras and baptisms and 
you know, the, the local celebration for the Virgin Mary and they will like make prints and things like that. So I grew up actually around, you know, cameras since i known. And there was also a big level of hate. I mean, I would call it hate. I think that's probably the only thing that I ever hated was cameras because my father was heavily addicted to alcohol. So I related cameras to my father. I went through a ceremony that allowed me to understand, you know, the the healing power of, of a camera. And through that, that's that's what became the vehicle for me to, in one way, heal the relationship with my father, but then also to be able to help others uh, see the power of this healing, you know. And, and by healing, I don't mean, you know, some very new age type of thing. It's just more of, I think that by expressing myself through images and through storytelling and, and seeing the beauty in those in the, in the shadows of society, I saw myself. I saw, oh, wow. Like when I remember when I used to be in the streets, nobody, I think people would look at me in a way that was either as a marginalized person or as a person who fucked up or something like that, you know? So for me, it was like, I, when I, I, I would see like, for example, a lot of houseless folks in my community in Orange County in California where I lived and I would see myself in them. And, and, um, for in the very, very beginning of me picking up the camera, which is actually my father's camera that he sent me. It's a film camera, a little Minolta film camera. And I started just hanging out with houseless folks and then really understanding how the image could be useful, not just another photograph of a homeless person. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that, that these images could be useful? One day when one of the people that I used to photograph he was heavily, he was really high on something. I don't know what he was high on. And he started uh, forcing me in a way, just really like heavily saying, photograph me, photograph me. And then he said, you have to bring me back photos of this. You have to bring me prints. So I went, you know, and, and I, you know, I did them and I brought them prints. And then he said, he looked at it and he said, I don't want to be this person anymore. He said, I, I don't want to be, you know, this, I don't want to look like this. Um, and he went on and to move on to, you know, cleaning himself and, and got a job and a little apartment and stuff like that. But for me, you know, that hate towards photography, towards cameras and towards my father was also very much linked to this one specific thing. I remember he will always, every time we will go to these little communities that, to be honest, were really poor, he will always if people didn't have money to pay for the photographs, for the prints, he would give them away for free. And my mom, my mom used to get pissed because she was like, what do you mean you're giving away free? Like, these are, these are money. This we're going to, we need to eat, you know? Um, but I remember my father always just being given like that. And then I remember every time we would go back to those communities, we will always be fed. Everybody, everybody will be like, Hey, come into our house. Let's, you know, we have some tortillas and some, you know, beans and, you know, some chicken, you know, let's, let, let us feed you because that one time where we did not have any money to maybe buy the only photo that we'll ever have of this event, you gave it to us for free. So so that's, I think, again, just in, in retrospect, realizing that the camera is a, as a healing tool, as a tool for connection and as a tool for, um, as a tool for reconciliation, the process is more important than the actual image, actually. Did seeing somebody make a living at this help you feel that it was possible for you? Well, I think it's a little different when I think of 
for example, with my mom and my dad, even though, you know, we were merchants, you know, my father was, you know, part artist, part part merchant, you know, we, we would, we would photograph things like, for example, he would photograph like, like this mountain that was like, you know, where the virgin appear. And then he will put a virgin, like he would like Photoshop why back when like Photoshop was done in like the film on the lab. And then he would like Photoshop the virgin. And then he will sell like little, like, you know, um, like little keychains. For me, there was a lot of observing that the image was in fact the product where now I, I see myself in my personal practice and now my parents practice, I see myself as the image is not a product. The product is healing. I want to make sure that everybody that's involved in the collaboration of whatever it is that I'm making, it's honored financially. And at the same time, we're doing something that is going to help all of us have self-awareness and self-realization. So it's different because when my parents is like, yeah, like they will sell like physical things. Like I, I sell prints, but are like super limited. It's the difference between taking something and something being gifted to you. Aside from watching your parents and their work, how else did you learn about photography and begin to build your skills? First of all, I, I dropped out of high school. I, I actually never liked school. I still don't like school. I felt that because of my experience living on the streets very young and also just kind of seeing how a lot of people just bullshit themselves, to be honest. Like a lot of people never do what they really want to be doing and they're just unhappy, you know? And and I remember, you know, meeting different characters through my life, really, uh, as a young person that were kind of like archetypes, right? And I started seeing, I like, wow, wow, like that person has a dope car and has all these things, but they're just like grumpy all the time, you know? <laughs> and you're like, wait, why is that? And then you start, you, you start observing. So I think that for me, when I was in school, it just didn't work. It just didn't make sense. It was like a, it was like an operating system that didn't make sense for my operating system, which was like, oh, like all these people are just gonna like pretend they're learning. So when I got my first camera, I didn't know what the heck I was doing, and I was very free about it. Like I didn't pressure myself to say like, oh, this is the right way to do it. It was more of, are you feeling it or not? I did enroll to. Uh, a couple of classes in, in in a college, like a community college for photography, which I learned, you know, the basis of film. My teacher, she's listening to this, she's probably going to laugh. You know, I would be like that kid that was just like late to class and like would not pay attention. But then like I would deliver my work and they'll be like, okay, this is pretty good. So I can, I can really say anything, you know? <laughs> I remember one time, you know, in the very beginning when I started editing photos, she was very much like, your stuff in black and white is really good. And the rest is, it's okay. And I was like, all right, thanks. And then I started kind of like realizing that even though school wasn't a thing for me, that there was a lot of value in learning that way for some people. What was it like starting off for you trying to find gigs as a photographer? I used to work in a restaurant. I worked in my re in restaurants since I was like 14, you know, washing dishes, busing tables. But the expectation for me growing up from my parents or from my mom really was, you know, just to work in a factory or work in a restaurant and, you know, provide for my family and things like that. And and I I adopted that, you know, I didn't see myself as an, as an artist until later on when I went to that ceremony and I, you know, I moved out of the house and I started kind of exploring a way for me to heal about some of the trauma that I had just gone through where I almost passed away. So what that meant, it was that 
for example, I made a friend who like, let me borrow my, this camera. And then I started taking these classes and then I started applying for, for scholarships and things like that. And I ended up getting an internship at the, at the OC Weekly in Orange County. And, and that, you know, then I started being able to go into um, concert photography and food photography and all these different things. And that's when everything really changes, when I started getting on the road with some of these bands that I started seeing like, oh, wow, like there's so much more, there's so much more to life than Orange County, <laughs> you know? Um, through a lot of that, I ended up building this larger community, especially of indigenous communities that I'm now, you know, after years, just being able to to relate to because early on my path as a photographer, as a storyteller, it was something that I just followed. So I guess I didn't look at it as a career. It was to me, the the journey of telling stories and me being an artist, mostly it's just my purpose on earth. You know, it's just like, like I actually don't see myself not being in the creative business. When did you start to get a sense of there being these big disparities in how you and others were being paid for your work? I feel like it's something that's not so easy to get a real sense of. People want to keep the prices and the rates secret. They always want to be able to say, look, it's just a meritocracy. It's not white supremacy or misogyny or anything else. I'm just giving the most money to the most talented person. But we all know that's a lie. Somebody literally said that to me, what you said. It was just like, oh, we're not we're not picking on based on color. We're just picking based on talent. And I was like, what? Like... You're telling me that, that you have not, you cannot find one person of color that was talented. Like, that's not true. I'm only 31 years old and I just, I really feel like I'm in the beginning of my career. I think that one of the biggest lessons I've, I've learned so far is that abundance, it's our right. I've learned that at least personally that, that it's okay and I'm worthy of abundance and I'm worthy of respect and value because and again, I, I don't want this to sound egotistical, but really what, what I bring and what channels through what the work that I do, it's something that nobody could ever pay for. Like nobody could ever truly give me enough money to take my spirit. As I work and I do the things that I do with my artwork, I'm putting a piece of my spirit in them. So I learned that. And then you start seeing that, you know, sometimes it's okay to show up and be like, hey guys, you're underpaying me and I don't like it. And my spirit is telling me that like, this is not cool. So, you know, please pay me well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, or like, please, please honor the, please honor the rate because, you know, I, I, I think of money in terms of energy. And if, if you think my, you know, my energy is, is valueless at a low level that, that I don't value it, then I, I don't think we're going to be able to have a deal there. You know, to be honest, it's like as a person of color, it's much harder to be like, hey, pay me well, and, and not be seen as like marginalized or like, you know, like I remember talking to people like a year ago about like Black Lives Matter and like, hey, like it's kind of fucked up, like that your team is only like one person of color and like you have like 20 other people that are mostly men that are not people of color. And they will be like, well, you know, this, that's just how it is. And I'm like, and then now I see those same exact people. It's so funny to me. It just cracks me up that I see those same exact people that were like doing that shit, like putting that Black Lives Matter flag in their house. And I'm like, and, and now they're all like inclusive, you know, oh, we're inclusive now. It's almost like, 
um, my teacher, Fred Richin, says this all the time. It's like we're driving 100 miles per hour looking at the rearview mirror. And in this industry, especially in this society, in American society, we're like pretty behind on like some basic shit, like land acknowledgements for indigenous peoples, like, you know, being able to make sure that we honor and acknowledge that, you know, that genocide of indigenous peoples, that enslavement of, you know, African folks. And I feel like we're catching up, but it's almost like a forced catch up. How did you get your feet underneath of you around things like, actually, this is what I'm worth. And I really think you should pay me this. First, I did not start like that. I started by actually like losing money. Like with this first internship that I did at the LC Weekly, it was like, I will give up my shift as a server to go and like photograph a band where there was like three people in the audience. And, you know, it was like really shitty lighting and it was really bad photographs, you know? Um, and then from there, you know, I will spend money. I will like eat, blah, blah, blah. So I went up like losing money that day. However, I remember asking this photographer from that same place, from the OC Weekly, if I could come in a system you know, like, hey, I want to learn from you. And I remember him just like ignoring me about it. And then I started kind of like learning how much he got paid. And like, he wasn't getting paid that much either, you know? Like early on, I saw that that people really expect free photographs. Like people actually, people don't understand the value of storytelling. How, however, I do feel that some of those opportunities with the OC Weekly were so important and fundamental to the way that you know, that I started developing relationships. So I met a lot of artists, I met a lot of musicians. You know, I will I will ask to go backstage and make a portrait of them or whatever. And through that, that's how I started building a lot of my relationships. So I remember I just sneaked in into a music festival and I pretended to be press and I photographed uh, the whole weekend. I literally like, you're just another photographer out of the hundreds that are here. However, there was this moment where the guitarist of, of the closing band, the band that was closing, he he burned his guitar on stage exactly where where Jimi Hendrix burned his guitar. And I was like one of the only photographers that was able to make that image because I was just there at the right place at the right time. And then I, 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 I remember going straight to, to the hotel room and grabbing my computer and then going to the Starbucks that was closed, like in, in this shopping center to get some Wi-Fi. And I edited it and I and I and I sent it on Instagram to to this band and they posted it. And after they posted that, like everybody in that festival like was following me and like looking at my work. The reason why I share this is because I think that the way of the future of photography, especially like storytelling with like people that are not getting paid that much, it's gonna be a lot of people, like extremely saturated. And you have to stand out enough to yourself. Like, like you have to push yourself enough to learn your value because I see like people that are, you know, just doing all this cool stuff, but like, but they're like not getting paid, you know? And even like, you know, for mainstream publications where it's like, oh, I, I get to photograph for the New York Times. I'm like, that's awesome. But you do know they're going to pay you only this much, right? And you also have to share the rights. And I think that people are willing to do things because they want to get the recognition. And I think that's early on, I realized that if you do that, people are not, not going to respect you. Like people are actually going to walk over you. 
And then at some point, you're just going to normalize it and think that is, that is how it is. Oh, you know, they want to take half of my rights. Oh, that's just, that just a contract. It's like, no, well, you can actually, we can restructure that contract. Like, if you really, really want to work with me, then let's figure out a, diff- a different way to make sure this contract is fair. I feel like that's a great point to transition to some of your organizing work. And I'd love to start that conversation by asking you a little bit about your experience at Standing Rock during the Dakota Access Pipeline protests. As I understand it, someone close to you invited you up there and you were thinking you'd stay for a little while and then go home, but you ended up staying for seven months. Can you tell me a little bit about why you decided to stay? Yeah, I think that for Standing Rock, my experience there as a as a storyteller, especially as, a, as an Indigenous storyteller, you know, oftentimes when I talk about this specific theme, it's more difficult for me to talk about it than it would be for somebody that just went there for like a couple, you know, like a couple days or or something like that. Because uh, when you're photographing and you're telling the story from the inside out, there is a level of accountability that that, that you need to have to the community. And I think that what I learned the most from standing rock and and documenting and and being present on the front lines of, of, you know, of telling the story is that one, that everybody had their own experience and that that's okay. You know, that there were, there were people that went for a weekend and that's all they, they had in their bandwidth and, and they did what they needed to do. And there's some people that invested themselves a little more. And I think that also on the storytelling side, in my own personal experience of how I develop and how I like, how I started seeing photography differently, because once you're shown what it could be like, then you don't want to return, you know, like if you shape reality by the stories we tell, ourselves and the stories that we're told in a consistent basis, then who is shaping that reality? Then you start looking back into the, you know, retrospectively about like the work that has been done, especially by indigenous peoples. And then you start seeing, wait, hold on. How come we did not get a chance to tell our own story? Like instead of being, instead of being put in the, you know, as a subject, why, why didn't we get the teachings of how to make a photograph so that we can do it for ourselves? And I think that that's what I learned at Standing Rock is that it's all this, all these, you know, all these visions and and really like dreams and hopes of what the future could look like for Indigenous storytellers. That is such an important point. I know I encounter that in my filmmaking, this question of how to give the people who are part of our work, who are the subject of the work, a role in creating and shaping the work. First, that's the foundation of how I want to do work moving forward. It, it's, it's, it's like collaboration as much as possible. And and that probably affect a lot of the work that I make, which a lot of it sometimes is very photojournalistic and, you know, fly on the wall, like especially a lot of like protest, social justice stuff. But even then there's a level of collaboration that, that often happens, just like it happened with Black Lives Matter here in Portland. I was, I was able to show up every day, just kind of keep my mouth shut and just like, listen. And if I want to be here every day, then what am I bringing to this? So then at that moment, that's when I decided, okay, I'm not going to take any assignments. I'm not going to come out here and photograph for an outlet. I'm going to make the images for the people that are out here every day, and I'm going to start building those relationships. And I think that that is important in the sense that, you know, even up until this morning, when I'm I'm photographing this this friend that I'm doing a project with over, over FaceTime, I mean, there was so much collaboration involved everything from making sure your settings are right on your phone to you know making sure that you clean your space before you you know before we do the session to 
how do you want to be represented? Do you want to have your traditional regalia or do you want to have like regular clothes? And I think that that's important. We need to start thinking in terms of where are the things that are shaping a reality? I think that's a future and we haven't realized it fully because we're still holding on to that like patriarchal, like Western mindset that says in order for you to have value, you need to take from something else. And it's an interesting thing because you know, when you say no, for example, like in an industry that that expects you to beg to be accepted, like I've, I I remember before this Black Lives Matter movement came into fruition, people were so not ready to talk about these things, and and then you will bring it up, and then you will be looked at as oh, like that person that's like making noise, you know. And they came to realize that wait, hold on, like <laughs> they were just doing like some basic, like just basic manners of humanity. <laughs> You know, it's like, if you're telling a story about an indigenous man, can there please be an indigenous man in the production that is informing the, the process? I think that what happens is we're going in, in a, we're going in a transition that is going to require us to unlearn and to er not even erase, but to update the programming that we've been programmed with. You have to be the bridge to make sure that you're protecting the people that you're making images with. And also, I ask, my, I ask myself this question every single time I do anything is, is who are you making this for? Who is at the forefront of why you're making this? And who's going to benefit from this long-term? And is it doing something to advance social change? Like, if you want me to go out do a commercial of McDonald's, you know, and put indigenous peoples in there, and then we start seeing that like indigenous kids start eating more McDonald's and then they got diabetes. I'm not down for that. You know, like it's really interesting the moment that we're living in because we're never going to have this moment again where the indigenous narrative is like starting to starting to come up in a way that I feel like in six months, hopefully less, there will be a point where all of a sudden everyone around the country and around the world is, will start understanding what you know, what has happened to indigenous peoples and also how indigenous peoples are alive. Like there's people that think that indigenous peoples are gone. They're just like, oh yeah, I, you're a Native American. Like, okay, great. Like, you know, I didn't know you still existed. Yeah, I think some of the powerful images that have come out of the past few years, for me as somebody who's an outsider to that culture is that reminder that that resistance has been going on for hundreds of years and thinking about that legacy and the lessons that can be learned from the many different people who've survived attempts to erase them. I think it's a really moving point that's been made to, to me in ways over the past few years that I hadn't heard it as a younger person. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the truth is, is, my friend says it very well, is that indigenous peoples are post-apocalyptic peoples. We already went through the apocalypse that we were facing. You know what I'm saying? So, so then you start thinking... Uh, about the fact that how did these post-apocalyptic folks um, still thrive in a society that up until 1978, I cannot believe this, up until 1978, you could not perform any, they call it religious, but it was just like spiritual ceremonies because it was illegal in the United States. And then you start expanding your understanding that this system that colonized um, a lot of our relations throughout throughout the world continues to colonize us. It just happens to be that now, you know, the colonization is happening through your phone, you know. <laughs> so, so they're they're not just mining like 
your your resources in, in the land, but now they're mining deep down inside your insecurities and fears. When I think about myself as an artist and when somebody reaches out to me and says, hey, do you want to do this thing? The first thing that comes to my mind is somebody else was getting paid a lot, probably a lot more they're going to offer me to do this. And I'm going to ask them politely to double it or triple it. Because I know that a lot of the times when especially big corporations come to you, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to save money. You know, they're not they're not thinking, oh, we're here to truly benefit you. If they come to you because they want something out of you. I think that people in especially in like media industry need to understand that it's it's time to make radical changes. Since 2017, you've been part of a few different collective organizing efforts from image makers and visual storytellers. I know in 2018, you co-founded Natives Photograph, which is now called Indigenous Photograph. And more recently, you were a co-author of the Photo Bill of Rights. What drove you to participate in these collective organizing efforts? In 2017, I remember being chosen to be the, the Magnum Fellow for Social Justice and Photography. It was a, a pivotal moment because not only did the Magnum Foundation expose me to to a lot of like media outlets and you know photo editors and you know gave me a really a first glance of what that whole world looks like because I had no idea before that uh, you know before that I was not really considered by a lot of people probably even a photojournalist you know as far as the the philosophy and the approach the Magnum Foundation gave me they Im- implanted in me this great sense of thinking about the future. I started seeing how when you went to see a photo editor, you know, you walk into the into the big rooms of like these big, you know, corporations and you see like no people of color. You're just like, what the heck? Like one over there, kind of one over here, never at the top, never, you know, the executive, this executive, that. So then I started seeing, okay, hold on. This is super messed up. And then just like literally see no indigenous peoples. Even though the majority of us are living on like the lands of other peoples that were here before us, so then when that happened, I started thinking. Well, first I was I was really upset. You know, you get angry, right? You're like, oh man, that's so messed up. They don't have that, and you know, you start getting frustrated. And then I went through this process of really trying my best to talk about it, but it, it wasn't coming out right. It wasn't coming out, you know, the, the right way. And then I made Daniela Sagman, You know, she's the founder of Women Photograph, which is an amazing collective. It's it's all over the world. It's it's remarkable collective. Uh, and then, you know, she started also, she's also passionate about these things. And she has worked with indigenous communities before through her work. And I don't know, there was just something there that was like a lot of chemistry and also a lot of like, like I stand with you. And she really helped co-found this. Um, now we have two other co-founders, T- Taylor uh, Irvine, who's an amazing uh, photographer, and also Brian Adams, who's a, a photographer up in Alaska. And the reason the why of why do you start this or why do you get into this other things like the photo bill of rights is because if they don't have a table that it's inclusive and that has a seat for you in an equal way, then you have to make your own table. A lot of it, it's understanding the future, but also understanding that nobody is going to do it for you unless you get up and, and do it. And then also that as the opportunities come as this larger weaving that you're doing collectively with everybody else starts to grow, then there'll be a point where, for example, you have to say no, right? You have to say, hey, that's great that you want to do that project. And I feel like 
I'm worth a little bit more than that. We need to bring balance to this industry. We need to bring way more photographers of, that are telling their own stories. And then, oh yeah, that's great that you are doing all that. But I have, you know, that the cover of Time Magazine with, you know, President Biden. Oh well, let's let's have an indigenous photographer do that because because they always stop right there. You know, they're like, oh yeah, this is great. But like, but then you get like the big big gigs, and it's like really the same person. What do you think are some of the things that stand in the way of people saying no? Sometimes we don't love ourselves enough to say, you know what, that's actually, that doesn't work for me, or I'm going to pass on that. Like we've been taught to, to be like, like obedient and, and feel guilty and feel fearful. Like, oh my God, if I say no to the opportunity, like that just happened to me last week where somebody's like, we want to do this big documentary series, this and that. And I was really excited about it. And then they're like, hey, like it didn't work out, like blah, 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 blah. And I was like, that's cool. It's, it's, it doesn't mean that the, the world's going to end if I don't do that. And, and it maybe wasn't a good fit for that. And then you move on, right? You create space. So a lot of it, I think, is about loving ourselves, being honest with ourselves, and creating a paradigm for, for ourselves to, to have compassion towards us. Because a lot of the times when we say yes to things and we actually are getting paid nothing or not that much, it's because we're not being compassionate for ourselves. And then what about saying yes? What projects are you really excited about right now? Yeah, I think the one big project, and really it's, it's thinking about this philosophy of indigenous futurism is, is indigenous TikTok. I think that what I'm noticing with this, you know, these platforms like TikTok where they're making, they're making platforms where people can tell their own story, but there's still a lot of limitations to the way that that is. And that, that is because of the algorithms that, that I think are used. But there is a way, which that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out with this indigenous TikTok project to create a curated version of indigenous TikTok and then present that not only for people in, you know, on Instagram, on TikTok to understand and educate themselves about indigenous issues, but also for specifically for, for high school students and for students in like even in junior high, where instead of saying, hey, it's Native American Heritage Month, we're going to learn about Native Americans. Go go read this book and then the kids never read it, or go go watch this movie that's like super old that nobody cares about. Then, then instead of doing that, you say go and spend an hour on indigenous TikTok and and give me a report on you know what was the most impactful one, what was the one that surprised you the most? Because the truth is, it's like we've been programmed to believe that indigenous peoples are non-existent, and the truth is, is that like. I mean, just look at indigenous TikTok for like an hour and you'll be like, wow, there's so much that I don't know about this. And and people are willing to share and, and do, you know, create content and tell their story, not only so that they can get likes and follows, but a lot of them are sharing, you know, there was this woman who was sharing like her story about addiction and just like, I was addicted and like, I'm sorry that I hurt so many people. And, and, and she publicly saying like, I have a big platform and this is also part of me. It's not just the cool regalia, you know, dancing. It's like, there's also this side of me that, you know, sometimes we say we love the, we love the food, but we don't love the people. You know what I'm saying? So like, so like you got to love the whole thing, you know? And indigenous TikTok does that where, where you just start seeing, oh, wow, like people are complex and, and like indigenous people go to the dentist too. Like, just like me, you know? <laughs> oh, what a surprise. <laughs> I don't know. I just think it's funny that like it's 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 we we really really been programmed to think that like other people are different than us and we're not. We all remember like the original dream, I think, and that's embedded within all of us is this, you know, this connection. And I think that 
that's the goal with a lot of the work that I do is to for us to like bring us back to a place where we can remember. Links to Josue's website, to Indigenous Photograph, and so much more that was mentioned in this episode can all be found in the show notes on our website, theanswerisnoshow.com. And we want to hear your stories of saying no to bad gigs, whether on your own or as part of a collective effort. You can email us or record a voice memo and send it to theanswerisnoshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Answer Is No Show. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast apps, and share links with anyone you think might be interested in these episodes. Thanks so much to today's guest, Josue Rivas, and to Ali Cotterell, our co-producer and editor. We'll be taking a short break after this episode, so check back with us in two weeks to get our next episode. And remember, collectively saying no to bad gigs can help us all get to a better yes. The answer is no.